when I kind of started my sexual journey, one of my biggest things was faking orgasms. I had never ever experienced a partner orgasm until March last year, so March 2018. It's when I first experienced my, um, had my first partner orgasm. But there are so many men out there that think they have given me the biggest, wildest orgasms because that became my default to just fake, you know. And I, I also take into account that there are so many reasons and it's a very nuanced conversation as to why people fake orgasms. You know, it might be to get out of painful sex, maybe they're having sex uh, through coercion or there are so so many reasons why people fake orgasms but the majority when it comes to women who have sex with cis men is because we feel this need to perform that our pleasure is secondary that you know we have to help him reach orgasm um, and that we, we've been made to believe that you know if we don't get aroused and have an orgasm within 10 minutes then there's something wrong with us That was Africa Brooke, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 156. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. We'll be diving into the full episode in a few minutes, but before that, I have three quick things that I want to share with you. The first is the promise that my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. That's it. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You're great. And we're all just doing the best we can. That's what I believe. The next thing I want to share is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language. And we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and pretty much everything in between. My personal hope is that these conversations make you feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. I think that's super important. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to share before we get to today's episode is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast, because these honest conversations are 100% listener funded. They're made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. This kind of tangible financial support, that's what allows me to make the show. And it also pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That's me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all of my guests, and a few months ago, our community met the funding goal to make that happen. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time, with higher rates always being paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show for that matter, I guess, Um, but I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world of honest conversations where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. 
And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Sometimes the live events and retreats actually get sold out within the Patreon community. So if you're interested in that, that is a good place to be. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization, with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood. So you can feel good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. If you go over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, that's where we do our live Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. Those are perhaps one of my favorite things uh, that we do in the Patreon community. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Africa Brooke. Africa is a Zimbabwean-born writer, speaker, mindset mentor, and advocate living in London, and she's a woman on a mission to get us thinking about holistic self-development, identity, mental health, sober living, sexuality, and all things pleasure. In this episode, Africa tells her sobriety story, why and how she quit drinking, all the times that she failed to stick with it before quitting for good, what helped her in the early months of changing her life, and so much more. We also dig into a wonderfully honest conversation about sexuality, and Africa shares what she's learned about herself as a sexual being since getting sober. We talk about faking orgasms, tantric sex, and more, and I just absolutely loved how open Africa was throughout it all. I'm so excited for you to get to know her through this conversation as well. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Africa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been so excited about today. And you know what, this morning when I woke up, I was quite sniffly. I can kind of hear my nose is a little bit blocked. But I was still just beaming, just looking forward to 5 p.m. so we could do this. So thank you for having me here. Oh, I love that um, we have (laughs) such a big time thing. You're in the future, right? (laughs) It's 9 a.m. here. It's 5 p.m. for you. Tell me, how is the future? Is it good? (laughs) It's very good. It's very good. (laughs) Um, so it's funny that you mentioned, you know, when you woke up this morning feeling a little bit sniffly, because one of the things I was going to ask you is to drop me Mm -hmm. into your real life and tell me how you spent the first hour or so of your day today. What was that like? Oh, the first hour. So I woke up at 5.35. um, And I'm being very specific about that time because I always wake up at 5.30 every day. Um, every weekday but today I was like no I don't want to get up so I snoozed for five minutes Um, and then I had breakfast so before I go to bed I put my phone on flight mode just so I don't pick up my phone first thing in the morning kind of looking at new messages Um, and if I kind of pick up my phone and take it off flight mode 
I know that I'm breaking my morning routine, if that makes sense. Um, so it, it gives me the time to kind of wake up properly, to have a shower, to have breakfast. And then after four to five minutes, I can grab my phone and see what my day looks like. Um, and then I had a dentist appointment. I was having a filling done. So a, a large portion of my face is also quite numb <laughs> right now as we have this conversation. Um, and then that was for about an hour and a half. And then I came home, took a nap. I give myself days off on Wednesday. So I work for myself. And I Wednesday is kind of my day off where I don't do too much. And I just kind of have deliberate rest. Um, and that's what I did for a couple of hours. And then I woke up, read, and then prepared to have this chat with you. Okay, I have so many questions about that. I love... <laughs> that you said that you give yourself Wednesdays off for rest. First of all, I want to hear yes. how you chose Wednesdays and just like, how, is this something you've done since the beginning of working for yourself? Or I, there's like something so beautiful about giving yourself a midday, if you can, like day to rest. That sounds yeah. incredible. Yeah. So this, this actually came about when I was still uh, working in my full-time job. So up until recently, up until last week, actually, I was still in a full-time job. So I was balancing my sex positive company, my holistic self-development company and my full-time job at the same time. So I was very familiar with burnout. So I realized that I had to start giving myself a day off and it just became Wednesday. Um, about uh, six months ago, I decided that it would be Wednesday. And it's just kind of stuck. And it feels good because I also take the weekend off. So I can work for the first two days and then I have a day off and then I can work for another um, two days and then I have a weekend off. So it's just a routine that works for me and one that's stuck. Yeah, I, I'm listening to you talk feeling like on one hand jealous, then on the other hand, I could also do this. So uh, like, I've been no, but I've been thinking a lot. I'm I'm pretty burned out lately. And I've been thinking a lot about intentional rest. And specifically, I mean, I think this problem is a little bit um, more resonant with folks who work for themselves, and especially who work for themselves in a way where like, who you are as a person is really related to the work yeah. that you do, which is true for you and it's true for me. And, you know, so I've gotten to this place where I'm like, is Instagram for fun or for work? Okay, well, it's both. Okay, well, what does that mean? I mean, and that's just one tiny example, but I've been thinking about like how to draw boundaries for myself when the boundaries aren't that clear. So I'm, I'm interested um, how that looks for you. So for me, that's a, that's a very good one. And I do have to ask, have you found anything that works? Have you found anything that um, you've already started applying to kind of set those boundaries in terms of social media? I mean, have I found things that work or have I found things that work that I stick with? Because <laughs> I think that's a different question. Um, <laughs> things that work that you stuck with. Um, it's Well, it's funny that you mentioned the, you know, putting your phone on flight mode or airplane mode. Um, I find that when I don't sleep with my phone in my bedroom, that's really helpful. I got in the habit for a while of just leaving it downstairs in my office and I bought just a simple battery powered alarm clock, you know, that I, so I could have a clock next yeah. to my bed. Um, that was really helpful. And that is one of those habits that I know helps and that I very frequently slip out of the habit of doing. So yeah, I mean, that that helps. Same thing. I mean, it's mostly just, yeah, trying not to be on my phone constantly, trying to not take it out when I'm with friends or doing other things. Like, I guess just being a little bit mindful of 
I don't yeah. know, like being more intentional with it. But I th- again, e- I think it's easier said than done. And I'm noticing, especially now that I'm in a phase of growing my business and, you know, things yeah. are going to be changing for me quite a bit this year that I would like to develop some habits and routines to put in place, hopefully like now. So it doesn't become like eight months from now and I'm completely yeah. fried. You know what, to be honest, I, yeah, I completely get that. And I relate massively. And for me, I think at the start of 2018 is when I realized that, okay, my social media, the the initial attention for me starting uh, my page was to just kind of journal and tell my story. But soon after, I realized that, okay, I'm starting to get a lot of work from it. So I did start begin to understand that it is a business as well. But then when the business and personal both overlap, and like you said, when you are the business to some degree, which means if you stop, the business stops. That if you don't do anything, then nothing will come in. Um, And most of the time, what that means for me personally is that I am on my phone all the time. But that wasn't working very well with my burnout of everything that I was doing when I'm not on the phone. Um, And what I what kind of works for me in that regard is to write because every everything that I write is um, I don't pre-plan any posts. And because I'm always thinking and because I always I'm very observant. So there's always something that I want to talk about. When I write a post, it's kind of there and then. And once I write it, I'll just come off. I won't go onto my explore page. So I actually don't really go onto my explore page anymore. Um, This is Instagram, obviously, that we're talking about. I don't go onto my explore page because I know that once I'm there, I'll click onto one thing. And then what might feel like 10 minutes has actually been two hours. And that has happened to me so many times. So I know that if I go onto the explore page, I'll end up going into a rabbit hole that I don't need to go to. But if I come onto my page with an intention to write what I need to write and to share it, respond to what I need to respond, and then just come off. And like you said, it's easier said than done. But because... I really want to be intentional with everything that I do and social media for me, those little moments of kind of just looking at things that I don't need to, it seems harmless, but I know that I'm losing two hours and as someone that has a business and has a lot of shit to do, I I can't afford to do that. So that was a very long way of saying I just don't go onto my explore page. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, I, I like getting into the weeds on this because I think, yeah. you know, one of the things that I have realized in the last couple of weeks since I've been thinking about this and thinking like, what habits do I want to put in place for this year? or What do I really want to experiment with? I think one of the downfalls for me is that I overestimate how quickly I need to respond to things and how much time I need yes. to spend. And then I think this is true for email, for other things. Like if I only checked things once or twice a day, like that's still a really fine response time. And yet yeah. I have this fear, I don't know, like I have to be more available than that. And I like logically, I know that yeah. that's not true, but that is sort of what it is for me that I'm like, you could just check Instagram once or twice a day and it would be fine. And then still I'm like, you know, on it like 50 times a day. So. Yeah. Oh, I think <laughs> I think what you just said really hit a soft spot for me, the um, kind of being always available. And like you said, I know that I don't have to be. I really do know this. But in terms of practice, even when I get an email, I feel like I do need to respond straight away. And I, I quite like responding as soon as I can, because then it's out of the way. Um, 
but sometimes there is that kind of expectation. And this also um, transfers to my DMs onto Instagram because obviously with the kind of things that I talk about, you do get a lot of people that resonate and resonance is one, one of my biggest values. I love that so much. But then what happens then as well is that you feel like the person on the other end needs an answer now. And um, I'm also allowing myself this year because of experiencing burnout and just feeling like I owe everyone something, um, allowing myself to just be like, okay, Africa, you don't need to reply right now. The world is not going to burn if you don't give this person advice or make this person feel better or tell them that you understand. Or if it's an email with some kind of opportunity, you do not have to respond straight away. You can just, just do what you have to do, even if that means not doing anything right now. And that is, that is a very difficult one. And that's, that's something that I have to actively remind myself every single day that I do not have to be available all the time, which is why I, I turn my phone, um, I put my phone onto flight mode at 11 PM because then I'm not, no one needs me between the hours of 11 PM and 6 AM. But it's just about reminding myself of that. <laughs> oh, I know. Like when I catch myself bringing, taking my phone into the bathroom, I'm like, what are you doing? Like you don't, no one needs, just go pee. Like the fuck, nobody needs you right now. Like so ridiculous. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I was doing that the other day. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> so it sounds like it's been really recent that you left your full-time job. Tell me about that decision or, you know, what kind of led to that or fears, concerns. I'm always interested how people make yeah. that transition. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, this time last year, I would have been very, very afraid to take that leap because I had it in my head. I had this kind of belief and I'm from, um, I'm from an immigrant family. So I'm from Zimbabwe and we came to the UK in 2001 when I was nine years old. And with most immigrant families and especially my own, because obviously that's my direct experience, um, a nine to five or a quote unquote stable job is what you need. It's what most people strive for. So non-conventional work is not really valued. And I have always known that I'm not made for conventional work, for kind of a nine to five, in the sense that if I'm there, I will do my fucking best. But I've always felt that I have more to give, that I sometimes I feel creative, but sometimes I want to do something different. I, I've always just wanted to explore different things. But that fear and that deep belief that if you want to be a musician, which is what I wanted to be before, if you if you do music, you will never make money from it. You will never be successful. It's not a real job. That something you enjoy is not a real job. So once I started my business and just uh, started getting paid for my writing and started writing more, I realized that, okay, at some point I am going to have to leave this nine to five. But that fear was just holding me back because I knew that if I, well, I thought that if I tell my family that this is what I want to do, I, I'll get a bad response. I'll be told that I need to take into account that my mother has struggled so much for me to come to England and have a great education and have a steady job. Um, so I, I felt like I would be letting everyone down if I really followed my purpose and what I wanted to do. But then as everything I was doing started growing 
And as I started kind of exploring who I really am as a person, and by that I mean really asking myself, what do I want? And who am I willing to let down in order to live my truth? I realized that that would have to be my family. That would have to be the people closest to me in order for me to do what I need to do. Um, So I gave myself a date. I told myself that I was going to save £30,000 by December 2019, and then I would leave uh, my job. And obviously, that was a very logical idea I am I am quite a logical person I like to plan I like to have a strategy etc so that's what I did but when I kind of um, unpicked that a little bit more it's because I was fearful of taking action immediately I was kind of delaying what needed to be done but this didn't really work because at the same time I still had two businesses to run and I had a full-time job so like I was saying earlier that's when I started to experience burnout on a level that I, I never have before. And it was really taking a toll on my mental health. Um, and then I, I was like, okay, I December is too far away. So why don't we make it April? April 2019, that's three months. I was saying all of this to myself just before the new year. Um, so I was like, okay, that's three months to save money and then I can leave. But um, when I unpicked that even further, <laughs> I realized that again, I was putting everyone else before me. I just didn't want to disappoint anyone immediately. I wanted to to convince myself that it's because I just needed more time to save so that I could have something to fall back on so that I could still have money for my business, etc. Um, but the truth was I was just afraid of taking action. And then last week um, on Wednesday, I woke up and I had a very deep knowing that if I don't fucking do something today, I never will. And it it wasn't something that I could negotiate because it was my intuition telling me to fucking listen because I had been ignoring her for the past two years. Um, And I knew that if I don't resign today with immediate effect, I will keep on making excuses. I will keep on delaying. And so I typed up a resignation letter and I sent it to my boss and I I was so fucking terrified. Um, you know, I'm I'm someone that feels anxious sometimes, not not really so often that it overwhelms me. But as I was writing that email, I felt a deep anxiety that I've never felt in my entire life but I also felt an an empowerment a level of empowerment that I'd never ever felt before um and then I sent the email and then I told them that um I'm more than happy to hand over and do whatever needs to be done because I work I work in advertising which which is also um another conversation in itself as to why I also knew that I had to leave that it just didn't align with who I am as a person and so I sent that email and um, they weren't jumping for joy, but they understood where I was coming from because I also mentioned that it was taking a really, really big toll on my mental health. And um, I left and that's how I left. And now I'm not I'm not kind of thinking that it's going to be roses and uh, and money. Uh, money just falling from the sky every single day no but I do understand that now I have put myself first in a way that I never have before I know how fucking scary it is for a lot of people to leave a situation that 
seems secure. You know, we're told that it's secure, that once you leave, you're really putting yourself in the line when more often um, for a lot of people that I speak to, but especially for myself now, I see that in making this decision, I've made room for so many opportunities to come through. I think the following day after I resigned, I received three really good job opportunities, um, paid opportunities. And I was like, fuck, I I had probably been blocking all of these things from coming through by holding on to something that I knew just wasn't serving me anymore. But I wanted to let everyone know that I'm stable, that I have a real job. Yeah, it was just a it, it's yeah, it was just a very, very interesting experience. And to know that I gave myself the permission to do what I needed to do, I think is is one of the most freeing things for me. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I love talking to people who are sort of in the midst of transition mm-hmm. or of going through something because I think yeah. I mean, there's so much in what you just shared that's really relatable and interesting and sort of this balance between our logical side and also like the practical realities that we need money, right? Yeah. So I don't think that yeah. someone wanting to wait longer before leaving a job because they have to save a certain amount of money, like everyone is in a different situation with what their needs are. And so, but just hearing how that played out for you, right? The balance between intuition and looking at what were your fears versus what were kind of like family of origin fears that were being put on you or having to kind of parse through that. And then, you know, at the end of it, I feel like with everything, a bunch of things can be important to us, right? Like our money can be important and our mental health can be important and all these things. But at any given point, like something has to be most important. And I think, you know, like it's clear from what you just said that what you were experiencing in your mental health, like that was most important. And so therefore that potentially means taking more risks, you know, on a financial side or in other areas. And just, I don't know, like hearing the truth of how someone makes that decision is really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And I've heard many, there are so many different ways that um, people do this. And there are some people that believe it's a luxury to be able to make this kind of choice. But I think sometimes you really do come to a point of realizing that if I do not make this choice right now, I never will. And that that kind of uh, getting to that point doesn't just come when it in terms of leaving conventional work to follow your purpose or whatever you want to call it I think there are so many things that happen in life that that just put you into the that place of having to make a decision you never would have thought you would make and I made this choice with um how much do I have in my savings? 3,500, which is nowhere near the 30,000 that I intend to have in December, which I still intend to save in December. You know, and there are some people that leave their job with only a hundred pounds and some people that might have even more, but it's not, I truly believe that, you know, it's, it's just knowing that you have to make that decision. Yeah, I mean, and obviously one of the things that we're going to talk a lot about that we're going to dig into is sobriety, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the, the and I feel like there's a similar thing of, 
you know, deciding to quit drinking, right? Like I, you know, I, so I first found you through Holly Whitaker, who has been on the show before and obviously who is amazing and incredible. And um, when I found your work and writing through her, I I felt like it was really refreshing to Mm -hmm. find a fellow woman who also quit drinking in her 20s. Um, I think that that is maybe less rare now with how much, you know, like sober community and stuff there is. But when I quit drinking in 2011, it was a month before my 26th birthday and I didn't have any role models or mentors in sobriety. Like everyone that I either, I didn't even think I knew anyone who was sober and anyone that I had seen depicted, whether it was like TV or movies, it was much older folks and a real specific definition of alcoholism, right? Or that, so just to kind of find your work and especially um, how much you talk about sort of the link between sobriety and sexuality, it was all things that I could really relate to. And Uh, you know, just this, what you were just talking about, about, you know, you kind of hit a moment of, well, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. That was really similar Mm. to how I felt when I quit drinking. Like it wasn't some like rock bottom day, you know, it's not like something terrible happened. It was just like another day of being hungover again and like not remembering what happened the night before again. And like just getting to this point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. Wow. Where did you go? Did you immediately kind of think of AA or did you find another alternative way of recovery? How did you navigate it? Yeah, I did not go to AA. Um, I honestly never even considered it because I I mean, I'm not an alcoholic. That doesn't really resonate mm-hmm. with me. Yeah. And um, yet, with that said, I definitely had really self-destructive drinking behavior. And that was like, you know, through the last seven plus years of sobriety, that's one of the things that's become really interesting to me is how many folks and particularly how many women there are in the middle. Like I think culturally we're told this story of either you're a normal drinker in quotes, whatever that means, right? You can use this drug normally or- you're an alcoholic and that looks like, you know, drinking 24 seven, you know, you drink when you first wake up, you wake up in the gutter after three days that you don't remember. And like, of course, all of that can be true. And those stories deserve to be told also. But I think that it like that super black and white, you know, all or nothing system really leaves out a lot of folks like me who were and I know like you too, like who were binge drinking, like for whom it was really problematic, who were getting themselves into like unsafe situations, particularly sexually. And, you know, there was just not really a lot of resources out there. I mean, so honestly, to answer your question, the way I I kind of just quit really aggressively. Like I was like, kind of the screw you if you're not on board with this. Like, I know this is what Mm -hmm. I need. Like looking back, I kind of am amazed that I had the strength to do that because my entire social life revolved around drinking. And, you know, so I think, yeah, that definitely was was my path. And I'm interested to hear um, you talk about what it was like for you at the beginning. Wow. Firstly, I just have to say that is incredible. I think that is incredible simply because in 2011, um, I was, how old was I? I was 18, turning 19. And by then I knew that I had a very big problem with alcohol. I knew because I was starting to lose, um, I was starting to lose people around me. I was starting to find myself in, um, situations that were only getting worse I was used to things always ending up in some kind of fucked up way but it it started to get pretty worse um so around that time is when I I would type in you know those very um generic questions into google do I drink too much etc and 
yeah, there was nothing at that time. And I remember it so clearly. I think the most that I found was maybe some kind of forums. You you would have some kind of forums with someone asking a question and then maybe one or two answers. But there was nothing like it is today, whereby you have publications that uh, focus specifically on recovery for millennials, for example, or being able to put in a hashtag into a social platform and be introduced to so many incredible people who are your age. Um, so there was nothing. And I think one of the reasons I went back to drinking, just one of the reasons, was because I couldn't find any anything that resonated. So I normalized this behavior. And because everyone else around me was doing the same thing um I just I just couldn't get kind of like an outside perspective so I think it's fucking incredible that you managed to do that at a time when they you were your only resource if you will um so yeah that's amazing thanks um I mean but honestly I feel a lot of resonance with what you said about you know, quitting your job of like, if I, this has to happen now, right? Like that's, that's yeah. really what it is. Like, and I have always, I think almost overly prided myself on being a really logical, practical, you know, realistic person and have up until recently shied away from everything that I thought of as like too woo woo for me. And, you know, that's, that is changing, but that was really like my, one of my first really clear um, experiences with like what I now think of as like intuition, right? Like that it was just yeah. this like, sort of like ancient voice of like, you're done with this. Like nothing good is going to ever happen if you keep doing this. And all the time I think, oh my God, I'm so glad I listened to that voice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think just like you, that's, that's the very similar voice that I had on the day that I stopped drinking in 2016. And, um, that event was, you know, it, it wasn't explosive. It wasn't like a big profound moment it was just another evening where actually it had started in the daytime. I had gone to lunch with my boyfriend at the time and a friend of his who was visiting London. And uh, it was supposed to be just like a nice, quiet lunch. And then someone, one of us decided, um, I think they did, because by this time I would do my best to avoid any drinking situation because I knew that if I have one, it's going to end up being the same shit all over again. So yes, it was, it was my boyfriend. He suggested going to one of his favorite pubs and then we, we went and then I had one drink and then I had another and then I had another. And as I always used to do, I went through my phone trying to see who else I can call to join us because by this time, as, as it always happened, I would then decide that, okay, this night is not going to end that I have to squeeze the last juice out of this evening. No one is leaving. We are going to get fucked up. That was my mentality by then. Even if, even if I didn't want to, that's what ended up happening because it was my default. It was the pattern that I had created from the age of 14. So once I had one, I just was not able to stop. And I know a lot of people have heard this, but it's very fucking real. Once I had one, I would not be able to stop, regardless of whether I was at a baby shower or a work meeting or um, even a christening, a wedding, wherever I am, if there's alcohol, 
it has to end with me in a blackout. That that was kind of the internal commitment I had made um, with alcohol. And it wasn't even about the alcohol itself. It wasn't about what I was drinking. Um, it was about what it could do for me. It was about the fact that I could just change my reality. I could be whoever I wanted to be once I had that drink. But um, yeah, so this last night that um, I ever drank, we ended up, I ended up inviting more people to join us. They also, so everyone apart from me thought it was just kind of like a calm evening. But to me, it was a party party because that's how it always was for me. Um, so I think the bar closed around 10. Uh, this was on a Sunday. Yes, it was on a Sunday. So the bar closed around 10 and I invited everyone to come back to my apartment. And by invite, I mean forced. I was, <laughs> I used to force people to come to wherever else is next because I didn't want to drink alone. I never drank alone. Um, I used other people to kind of cover what was really going on. So I would drag everyone back with me and I blacked out as soon as we arrived. Actually, I think I started kind of getting glitches when we were still in the taxi. Um, and I blacked out for 10 hours from about 11 p.m. until the next day. I lost 10 hours, but when I woke up, I was alone. I was still drinking. So it's not like I went to sleep and then woke up. When I gained consciousness, I was still drinking. I had a bottle of wine in my hand. Um, everyone had left had no idea what had happened. The last thing I remember was getting into a taxi, um, bundling into a taxi. Um, and I had so many messages from my boyfriend um, kind of detailing some stuff that I had done. Um, apparently, I had been coming on to his friend, sort of shouting at everyone that everyone's boring. Just the, the same old shit. Um, just the same old shit. I wish this was new behavior, but it really wasn't. And then in that moment, I heard, no, I listened to my intuition for the first time ever, I think. And I knew that if I carry on this way, I will lose my life. Um, not just my life as in my social life and the people around me, but that I would die. And on that day, on it was the 30th of, uh, it was the 30th of October. I said to myself that I'm never drinking again, but it was actually on the 7th of November, the following month, when I made a commitment to being sober. Because in, when I said that I'm not drinking again, it was one of those things that I always did. Oh, I'm not drinking again. Apologize, apologize to everyone. Do the rounds without even knowing exactly what I'm apologizing for. And I was going to, I, I kind of told my partner at the time that I, I'm not I'm not going to drink anymore. He had had all of this before. We had been together for um, a year and a half at the time. And I had said all of this same, same shit before and I knew it. I knew that I was just going into default mode, the apologies, the promises, and then back into being that same person again. So a week after, I sat with myself and I knew that something much deeper had to change, that I had to get sober. It wasn't about not drinking anymore. I had to call it what it is. I had to get sober. So on the 7th is when I decided. And two years later um, is where we're at now. Mm. 
Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, oh, there's so much in here that I'm like nodding furiously, right? And I'm like, yep, you're not alone. You're not alone. Um, you mentioned that prior to this time that there were other times that you had tried and failed to quit drinking, um, which I think is important to underscore just for, I don't know, the reminder that healing doesn't necessarily happen in a linear progression that like, I don't know. I think it's, it's like a sexier story to be like, and then I just decided to make this change and I made the change. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that does happen, right? Like that's sort of what Mm -hmm. happened for me. And I think I'm an anomaly in that regard. I think that there's just something comforting of like, I wanted this and I couldn't quite do it or I tried. And then I like fell back into the patterns. Like just this idea that I don't know, like you can fail a bunch of times and then still change at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, I, that's why I, I think it's so important when I speak or when I write to mention that there is no quick fix. I will never make you believe that I just woke up one day and I made this profound decision and it was you. No, that's not how it happened. I tried seven times to get sober and the longest I was sober for was three months And that is a very long time. That is a very, very fucking long time when you have been um, used to a certain way of living, when you have patterns that are so embedded in the fabric of your being. You know, that is a very long time, even two weeks. That is a long time. That is amazing. You know, and life happens in such a way that you can't help what happens externally. You can't suddenly fix everything, everything conditioning or socialization you that's just not how it works so I always make it a point to let people know that it didn't take me one try and it's amazing for those that um just you know they have that one moment and they make a decision and they stick to it but there are many more that have to do it over and over and over again they just have to get back up and do it again and that is absolutely fine but yeah it took me that was my eighth time. I tried seven times before mm-hmm. to um, to get sober. Yeah, so I'd love to hear you get more specific about what was different this time. Yeah. Uh, specifically when you said that, you know, it took a week for you to realize, okay, I actually have to call this what this is. I'm going to be sober. I'm not going to fall back into these same patterns of, you know, apologizing, kind of being sheepish about it, and then going back into the same behaviors. So like tangibly, yeah. what did you do next? Like talk to me about the first, I don't know, couple weeks or months. Yeah. So I didn't know directly, I didn't know a single sober person apart from my mom who doesn't drink. But in terms of my social circle, I didn't know anyone who was sober. But my partner at the time, um, he had a family friend who was two years older than me. So she was 26 at the time. I was 24. And she had been sober for four years. And she used to go to AA meetings. So she took me to a women's meeting, I believe, on the on the very same day. So on the 7th, she took me to a women's meeting. And although I, I thought it was amazing, I felt the connection and I was able to kind of tell my story. It was amazing to get the, uh, the one-day trip and to feel accepted and not judged. Um, I just didn't feel... Um, I just didn't feel that that was for me. I didn't feel comfortable saying that I'm an alcoholic and I still don't to this very day. I knew that 
there was a different way, but I didn't quite know what that different way looked like. But I just knew that this wasn't it long term. And I have always been a writer and I've always journaled. So I went online and by this time I was already familiar with Holly's work. So I was I had hip sobriety articles bookmarked on my phone and my laptop and I would always go back to those. And because I love to read, I had so many um, sobriety um, autobiographies which really helped me. I found that they helped me a lot. And from there, I started an anonymous Instagram page just so I could connect with other people. And that was actually a very, very, very big part of my healing, um, believe it or not, because some people might find it difficult to, to understand how Instagram could be that. But for me, that's because I held a lot of shame. I I felt abnormal. I felt like there was there was something wrong with me. I felt like if I really share with um, the people closest to me about what's really going on and how dark it actually is, I will get judged. I will get called an alcoholic, um, and I just I just didn't want that. So Instagram felt very safe. Um, and because I was also anonymous, it meant that I could just write be as open as I want to be. And those posts are still on my page to this very day um, of me just documenting my journey every single day. If I have some kind of urge to drink, I'll go onto, um, onto my page and just kind of write about it. And that community really welcomed me just through fucking hashtags. It's incredible what can happen. And I just I just kept going day after day and I just kept reading. And that that was my way. Hearing other stories and being able to read other stories and to understand that I am not as fucked up as I think I am, you know, that this is especially when I started to learn about um kind of the drug itself, how alcohol actually works. And I, I was only able to do that by going onto hip sobriety to see what um, Holly had written about it, by going onto Instagram to see what other people were saying about it. But in terms of something tangible that I actually did, it was to start an Instagram page and to find community because I, I wasn't able to connect with the community of AA. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really powerful, this idea of creating the or joining the healing community that works for you and what you need, especially yeah. if it sounds like you and I have some commonalities in our stories that our social lives were very heavily revolved around drinking. And yeah. I mean, I had been a really public party girl for such a long time. I was also the mm -hmm. one who everyone come back to my apartment or I'm the one who's hosting the thing or, you know, and so when you decide to make a change that, you know, and I'm sure this is your experience as well, that like some of the people in your life don't understand, or maybe it holds up a mirror that they're not willing to look at, or, you know, there's some complex social dynamics there. And so being able to say, okay, here's this other group of people who maybe they live in different cities or different countries or, you know, whatever, just being able to tap into this reminder that you're not alone. I don't know. I think that that uh, sort of advice transcends um, even the conversation yeah. of sobriety of like whatever it is that someone's going through, like you are not the only one that's going through that. And as much as, you know, yeah. we kind of laugh about social media, like it can be an incredibly powerful place to find community of folks that like share your experiences, especially if that's not reflected in who you see in your everyday life. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And you know what? I I think things would have been so different for me right now. Obviously, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if it wasn't for Africa in 2016 actually starting that page. So what's been able to happen just from doing that and just putting my story out there is showing people that it is okay to talk about these things. And for me as well, why I know that I really didn't connect so much with AA and um, and NA was I, I just didn't see anyone that looked like me, even in terms of a young black woman. I just didn't see that. And that's not to say um, that's not to say I hold the belief that AA there's racism. I, I think there's also elements of that, but that's that's another different conversation. But what I'm trying to say is in my own community, there's a lot of shame. You know, we have this idea that if anything is happening, you don't speak about it. You go to church and you pray. You know, you don't air out your dirty laundry. There's there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And um, for a long time, I think things are changing now. Things like therapy and rehab are seen as white people things. You know, so there are a lot of things within my own community that I had to that I had to kind of battle and really put first before I even consider what do I really need so I didn't even see rehab as an option I don't think it was at the point of me needing to go to rehab but had it been I would I wouldn't have seen it as an option and therapy as well I didn't see it as an immediate option I ended up going into therapy um, a year later just to really kind of go back to my childhood and see how my upbringing and my dad was also an alcoholic um, to see how that kind of, you know, what part that had to play. But in terms of immediate action, I didn't see some of the things that other people would think are an option, like kind of like a no brainer, like, yeah, you, you go to rehab, you go to therapy. That was not an option for me. Um, and I, I didn't see it as such. So Instagram really shifted a lot of things for me. And just being able to see how open people are on there about therapy is what gave me the confidence and the understanding that, you know what, this there is no such thing as therapy only being for a middle class white woman. You know, it's for everyone, that it's not a luxury. And Instagram is the space that allowed me to connect with people that helped me to realize that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, um, because I, I really appreciate that you shared that, you know, the action step of, you know, starting this Instagram page, that was really helpful. Yeah. I'm interested in how you navigated some of the like person to person dynamics, whether that was, you know, socially with your friends or also, I mean, you mentioned that you worked in advertising and, you know, that being mm-hmm. sort of a more drinking heavy industry and something that has come up for me, you know, whether it's in DMs or people that reach out to me or that are thinking about quitting drinking or, you know, just some of these conversations are around the real realities of how normalized and almost like expected and important drinking is in a lot of professional cultures. And for me, having worked for myself or done non-traditional work basically my whole life, I think that I was really lucky to not have that be a part of the story. But I hear from folks all the time, and it's certainly not just in their heads, like I'm afraid to make this change because then what is that going to mean for me professionally or for these like work environments and that type of stuff? So I'm interested because I think it's easy to be like, just do you, like, yeah. don't worry about it. And also like, that's oh, not yeah, yeah. real, right? So I, I, how did that look for you? 
Yeah, I'll start with the um, social aspect of it, because I think that one is a big point of worry for a lot of people. Um, and for me, one of my one of the reasons why I found it very difficult to moderate wasn't because of the alcohol itself. It was the worry of what will I lose if I stop drinking? Because I held on to this image of who I thought I was and who I thought people loved and preferred. And it was the Africa that drank, it was the party girl. So I was very afraid that I would lose everyone. But just by still drinking, I still lost everyone. Um, and by the end of it, I only really had my best friend at the time who we'd known for a decade. So she really knew who I was and my um, boyfriend. So when, so I did have to kind of, I think what I'm trying to say is that I lost everyone anyway just by carrying on drinking, sometimes we can have this deep fear that if I stop, no one will really understand. And most of the time, they don't understand. People, you usually keep people around you that are also doing the same thing to such some kind of degree. And once you stop, it makes them start questioning their own actions. But sometimes you will end up in that same situation anyway, even if you do carry on drinking. But I think that was highlighted more when I did start working in advertising because everything is everything does revolve around alcohol and you only really realize it once you stop drinking. Yeah. Um, so each email, for example, if there's a meeting or an event, you know, at the bottom, it will kind of highlight the fact that there's free beer to kind of entice people into coming. Just it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I clearly stated that I was not going to be working on any alcohol accounts. I told them from the get-go that I wasn't going to to be on any alcohol accounts because of my sobriety and what I had been through but of course those are things that they you know they tell you not to worry about it they'll make sure that that doesn't happen but over time it you're exposed to that anyway And I began to feel that I was complicit in some way, because regardless of whether I'm doing it myself, kind of whether it's promoting the ad or buying ad space for some kind of drinks company, whatever it is, um, I, I just felt that it was kind of adding to the problem. And when I started to understand how alcohol is marketed to women in particular and how, you know, it's not the 50s anymore when alcohol was solely sort of marketed to men. Women are the biggest drinkers in the world today. Um, And I started to see that when I was working there. And it just, yeah, it just didn't align with who I am as a person. So I knew that I had to leave, but it can be very difficult for a lot of people because it is everywhere. That's why having some kind of sober support when you're starting out, or even if you're sober long-term, it's always good. And sometimes it won't be in a tangible space, like in your workplace. Sometimes it will be online, you know, but um, yeah, it, it's it's not easy. It's yeah. not easy. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I, I think for me, and again, I don't have the experience of having tested what I'm about to say in a professional context, mm. but socially and, you know, just, I guess, in other interpersonal situations, the thing that I found helpful was being as sort of 
confident and positive and no nonsense about the fact that I wasn't drinking. Like I didn't make it a big issue. Like, you know, Mm. someone would offer me something and like, oh, I don't drink, like, but not making it a big deal, right? Or like going to the Mm. bar and ordering something else, right? Like getting some kind of like (laughs) cranberry juice seltzer thing, getting kombucha, getting, you know, something different and just not making it a big deal. Like I found that for a lot of like situations, most people took their cues from me. And I don't know if that's everyone else's, Mm -hmm. you know, situation, but like I was just like not, I would say what needed to be said and not really open it up for discussion. And I found that that for me was more helpful. Yeah. You know what? Now, um, I think after a year sober, I I became to kind of feel more confident with saying, you know what, I I just don't drink and kind of ask if they have some other option. But in early sobriety, especially if you've had a really, really, really harmful relationship with alcohol, it can feel very strange to be saying to someone, I don't drink because there's a part of you that doesn't quite um, believe it yet. So it always sounds foreign coming out of your mouth and you do feel like you owe people an explanation as to why, because maybe you were that kind of person. Maybe when you were drinking, you were that kind of person that would always be like someone, why, you know, or, say that, you know, oh, don't be boring. Come on, just have one. You know, so there can be many, many reasons why people find it difficult. But it was very fucking liberating when I realized that actually, I don't owe anyone an explanation. I just don't drink. And I was only able to do that when it had become my new normal. Um, And when I had kind of got sober mentally, instead of kind of just saying, I'm not drinking anymore. When I had made the deeper commitment to actually be sober, it became much easier to say, I don't drink without feeling like I have to justify myself. But um, yeah, I think in in early sobriety, it can definitely feel like you owe everyone an explanation that you have to have some kind of um, elaborate reason. But at the same time, in terms of being practical, I, I think it's always useful to have to to pack some excuses if you know you're going to be in a social setting I always think it's good to have to be prepared with something or you know if you want to say you're driving you can even say you're pregnant if you want to say whatever you want to say but just know that you don't have to kind of end up justifying why you should have that drink or succumbing to someone's oh go on just have one it's always good to have your sobriety toolkit I'm sure you'll probably hear a lot of people talking about their sobriety toolkits but it's a very real thing to just be very equipped for whatever kind of social situation and to give yourself permission to leave I think that's a very that was a very big one for me because I always felt like I had to stay until the bitter end but just knowing that you can leave at any time, you know, if you've had the good parts of the night and you can see that everyone's starting to get a bit too um, too drunk or people are repeating themselves a bit too much, you can just say your goodbyes or slip away. Most of the time, people won't even realize you're gone, uh, to be honest, if they're drunk. But to just always kind of be prepared if you know that it might be a bit of a triggering situation or you might be with people or friends that are a little bit pushy, maybe in the same way that you used to be. Um, Yeah, it's always good to be 
equipped. Yeah, I love that. And like two things specifically, the sort of like Mm -hmm. practicing scripts or like you said, excuses, that was something that I've definitely done before. I mean, that I still do with situations of like, okay, I do it sometimes with like family gatherings, right? Not related to alcohol, just related to lots of different things, Mm -hmm. right? If I, you know, envision potentially that it could be a situation or a conversation that I don't want to be a part of, okay, you know, I'll journal about it. What are the questions I think Mm -hmm. I'm most likely to be asked? And then how do I want to answer? I used to do it, you know, in terms of starting to work for myself, I used to dread this. So what do you do question? And, um, um, it was the same thing, right? I would think, okay, how do I want to answer this question and like pre-prepare and like practice an answer. And I found with sobriety that was helpful. I also found that it was helpful because I did have, I certainly did have folks in my life who were supportive, right? So maybe like enlisting one of those supportive friends, if they're going to be at this gathering to kind of like be your sobriety wing person of like, you know, if someone is being really pushy, that they can be the one to be like, why are you back down? You know what I mean? Like, and that's not always works for everybody, but like having someone like in my corner I found was helpful. But I, I love your idea of prepping, you know, remembering that you can leave whenever you want and that people probably don't care about you as much as you think, right? In that (laughs) regard. And that like this gets easier over time, right? It might feel agonizing in week one or month three to have conversations that I will tell you right now by year seven, you like give no fucks. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Year seven is incredible. Seven years. That's amazing. Did you ever, um, did you ever kind of think you'd be able to say that did you know from the very beginning that I have made this decision this is it for life or Um, have you taken it year by year or I think at the beginning the idea of forever was too overwhelming because it was just such an entrenched part of my life um that you know, I, I actually took it as an experiment at the beginning, like, okay, I'm going to do this for five weeks. I'm going to like, I had to draw some sort of parameters around it so that I didn't just feel completely overwhelmed. I think for me, my biggest fear that you spoke to already, um, was about like not being fun anymore when I quit drinking Yeah, and that people thinking that I wasn't fun. And so mostly, like I said, I quit drinking like very aggressively, meaning that I was really committed to proving that I was still the same, proving that I was still fun. You know, I'd still come to happy hour. I'd still do all the things. And I really saw it as like alcohol is going to be this thing that I just lift out of my life and everything else is going to remain the same, Yeah, Um, which for like six months was true until I got to the point where I thought, okay, but I'm not really having fun doing these things anymore. Like maybe there's something else here. And I mean, I'm condensing a very long story into kind of a nutshell, but it took years, like literal years for me to get to the point where my sobriety toolkit was like robust enough and enough time had passed. And I felt really committed to this lifestyle to even start sort of peeling back the layers like with therapy of why I was drinking so much to begin with. And I feel like that's something that I always tell people who are interested in like doing sobriety or doing this. And it sounds like you've been able to do a lot of that inner work more quickly, but I just wasn't ready. Like some of the most profound breakthroughs that I had in therapy that relate back to drinking didn't happen until like year five or six. Like it took me that long to get to the point that I was even willing to touch that stuff. And I think, you know, again, for people like healing happens on like whatever timeline it happens. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, um, what I also realized with that is that 
you know, you can remove, because I think a lot of us kind of work on the action. So I'll use myself as an example. So when I first ever tried to stop drinking, I just focused on the action part, the actual not drinking, putting the bottle down. When I'm in a a social setting, I have water instead, but I didn't actually look at why I was drinking. So I had completely dismissed the mind part of it and just focused on the action, which meant that I could cover it up by having water, by having a non-alcoholic drink. Um, But there was still a lot of shit bubbling under. I still had the same mindset. I still had the same um, want for alcohol. I still felt like there was something wrong with me. I still felt abnormal. So I ended up relapsing over and over and over again. And what was different in that week after I had my very last drink was the realization that I have to start from the very fucking beginning like a baby. I have to look at why I drink in this way. I have to look at all the really yucky, gross stuff about myself before I can just say, okay, I'm not drinking anymore. I'm going to be sober. I knew that it was much, much deeper. And again, saying this now sounds all really, sounds really profound and it sounds really smooth and it sounds like I was sitting down and all of this came up. No, Uh, this has been very gradual. This has been kind of pieces coming together in the past two years of realizing that actually that is what happened that time. That is why this time was different because I made the decision without even knowing at the time that I was going to go much deeper than just saying I'm not drinking anymore, that I was going to go really go in there and see why I'm doing this to myself over and over again, why I'm so comfortable in destruction, why discomfort feels good to me you know, why I'm so used to the struggle of everything. Um, and I think that's why I've been able to to be sober. And that's why I know I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life, because I've made a deeper commitment to always go into the gross shit and really look at the why before going straight to the action, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and I think so much of like what's coming through of everything that you're saying in this conversation that we're having is, again, this idea that sort of people operate on their own timeline. Because I think for me, had I known on May 1st, 2011, that I was going to have to deal with some of the stuff that I've had to deal with, I'll tell you right now, I would not have quit drinking. Because it was too, like, and by deal with, I mean, like, all of that, right? Like, this stuff about myself and, like, why I did the things I did, right? Like, if you would have told me, like, this journey is going to involve a lot of self-discovery that's both beautiful and incredibly painful, right? And you're going to have to deal with some stuff and forgive yourself for some stuff. Like, I never would have done it. So I think also it's, it's, you know, fine and great to take things at, you know, whatever pace and, like, kind of, like, let yourself, give yourself the grace to be where you are. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the things that I was really particularly interested in in talking to you about, um, uh, because you've written a lot about the connection for you between sexuality and sobriety, and especially this idea that for you, you feel like they can't exist without each other. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So when I got sober, I was in my long-term relationship. And when we met, I was still drinking, I was still partying. And something that used to come with the package of who I was when I was drinking, partying, etc., was sex. Sex was a big part of it, and casual sex in particular. I, I personally feel that I 
abused my sex in the same way that I did alcohol. And I felt that my body was all I could really give um, because I had very, very low self-worth. I was very insecure just about myself because I really didn't know who I was. I was always kind of performing who I want people to be. And especially when it came to men, I was more than willing to perform. And I thought sex was the best way to do that. So I was having a lot of disconnected, drunk, high sex, but I had never actually felt connected to any of it. I was kind of just a body in action with no kind of internal connection or joy nothing like that and um when I got sober all of that sexual shame started bubbling to the surface all of it and more and how that manifested in my relationship is that we just didn't have sex anymore because I wasn't that person I was only able to be you know to kind of explore my sexuality when I was drunk when I was high and even in my relationship he might not have really noticed at the time, but I would always need some kind of drink, whether that would be at dinner or I would offer to, to make dinner. There would be some kind of drink um, because what I realized was that I was never actually sexually attracted to him. And all of this started to show when uh, when I got sober. And then we ended up breaking up for many other reasons. But what happened then was that I experienced a sexual awakening and not not the kind where I kind of burst into a state of pleasure, but in the sense that the sexual shame was so was coming at me in such a furious way that, again, for the first time since getting sober, I listened to my intuition and knew that I had some deep healing to do, that I had a lot of wounds that had to be healed. And I started, because I love reading, I started exploring um, tantric sex. I started um, working with self-pleasure, kind of just getting to know my body again. And I went on a very, very, very deep sexual exploration journey. But the catalyst for all of that was the amount of sexual shame that I held. And a lot of it was, a lot of it came about when I was drinking in the way that I was. Oh my gosh. I'm so so grateful that we're having this conversation. That (laughs) idea of relying on alcohol as like the only Mm. means to explore sexuality. I cannot tell you how much that describes my experience that I feel like people listening are going to be like, we get it. You agree with her. But um, that, that was so real for me. It took like, so once I, you know, five or six years in, like started, um, you know, going to therapy and, you know, kind of digging into this stuff myself. It was when I was finally able to admit that I, yes, I quit drinking for lots of reasons, but the main reason that I quit drinking was that so I wouldn't cheat on my boyfriend at the time. Like I had a history of that and almost every, not almost every single time alcohol had been involved. I realized that I had never had first time sex sober because I was drinking heavily basically since I was 17, right? Like my entire adult life doesn't mean I hadn't had sex sober, but never a first time, right? Or never anything that was exploratory. And for me, so much of what I used alcohol as was like a permission slip to be really sexual, which 
is something that I felt shame about, you know, that, you know, girls aren't taught to, Mm -hmm. you know, all of this, like fill in the blank stuff here, right? Like I was never taught that like my sexuality is something that it was okay to own, that it was okay to want to have a lot of sex, whatever that looks like for me, that it was okay. Like there were so many things that I was interested in that I didn't like that I felt a lot of socialized shame around. And it was alcohol that let me shut off my brain enough to be able to do the things that I wanted to do sober. So it's kind of like the reverse of what you were saying, right? Um, And like, it wasn't until quitting drinking that I was like, oh, I actually have to learn how to do this from scratch, which means I have to like accept the fact that I want the things that I want and that this is really important to me. And it was just this like, like mind explosion moment of, huh, that's interesting, right? Like that a lot of it was a tool for me to like do these things like without judgment and being able to laugh it off the next day of like using the drunk excuse. Oh, I was just drunk, right? When actually I did want to do those things. I just, you know, didn't give myself permission to do that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I have chills because everything you've just said, everything you've just said, I could have easily just said that. And I also had to realize that a lot of it, it didn't just kind of start when I discovered alcohol. I realized that a lot of it was to do with religious dogma as well. You know, this idea that good girls don't do that. Because um, when I was six, my mum found me masturbating so I was rubbing so I was rubbing my vulva onto the corner of a couch and um when (laughs) when that happened it was the first time that I discovered that my body could do bad things that you know making myself feel pleasure in that way was bad and that I should not be doing anything like that so there was already so much guilt and shame before then I didn't I didn't really think it was bad I mean a lot of children a lot of kids babies actually touch their genitals from a very young age simply because they're curious and it feels good that's all they know until some adult steps in and shames them and then it begins (laughs) um and that's what happened for me and Obviously, my my mother's absolutely incredible. She was only passing down what she knows that, you know, your your body, your vulva, your pussy, your yoni, whatever you want to call it, that it's a bad place and that it belongs to a man. You know, you save that for a husband. So you don't know anything about sex. You're not allowed to hear anything about it or even touch your own body. And then somewhere along the line, there's this hypothetical man that you have to then give your body to. So it's just, it's just a very weird thing. So I had a lot of that as well. And I just felt that I couldn't give myself the permission. I really used to um, slut shame myself and other girls because I didn't understand why they could express themselves in that kind of way because I couldn't, because I was shutting that part of myself off. So when I discovered alcohol at 14, I was able to kind of release this beast almost and just do whatever I wanted to do. And exactly like you said, blame it on alcohol. And I think from the first relationship that I've had, I I always cheated. I just always used to cheat. That was just my release. And I never used to feel guilty about it either. It's a very weird thing. I just never used to feel guilty. I would just do it. My body, it's like I, I didn't really have that 
mind-body connection. It was just a body. And if there's a man and if I'm drinking, I have to give him sex. I assumed that's what every man I encountered, including some of my male friends who probably didn't have the intention to have sex but I thought that's what they wanted and we ended up having sex anyway so there was just this kind of thing where I would just use my body to do all of these things and if I was drinking or high I was able to to you know release that part of myself and then when I was sober I would feel so much shame and just wouldn't believe that I've done that um but I had and yeah And then when I got sober being in a relationship, I was really able to see that, okay, so when I'm sober, I don't even want to kiss you. I don't even want to touch you. I, because I don't even want to touch myself in that way. So going on that journey of really exploring my body, um, I realized very early on that I couldn't do this. I, I shouldn't do this because I want to be better or more connected for a partner I had to do it for myself which is why working with self-pleasure was a great place to start because that's where it actually started when I was six years old that's where the shame actually was birthed so I knew that I had to really really explore my own body and then that confidence that I feel through self-pleasure you know, I can then take it into my, um, into my relationships. And that, that was quite difficult in early sobriety because I had been so used to a certain way of being. I only really explored sex if I, my mind state was altered, but it's, it's something that I made a commitment to and I stuck with it. And, um, it's just fucking amazing to know that I can, I can actually have mind blowing sex sober without reaching for something to kind of um, be the lubricant of the experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So this idea of exploring self-pleasure first, and I think before you mentioned um, finding like, you know, tantric sex, solo tantric sex, I'm interested Mm. in some more specifics about that because I think that this idea of self-pleasure first and like you can take that into a partnership if partnered sex is something Mm -hmm. that you're interested in, like that logically makes a lot of sense. And I feel like there's a lot of folks that would nod and be like, okay, but then it's like, okay, but like, since you were basically completely new to that, like, what did you actually do, right? Like, what did that look like to start to have that awakening and explore that for the first time? So what it looked like for me was where I really, really began was mirror work. And by that, it's it's the process of kind of actually looking at your own body first. And it's probably the most uncomfortable part because we don't really look at ourselves in that way. Actually, most of our most of the sex that we have our genitals, etc. It's usually your partner that really sees you in that way. You never really see you in that way. And we've never really been taught about our bodies in a, in a, in a way that goes beyond reproduction. We've never been taught about the pleasure body. And by that, I mean, what, um, what actually is the clitoris and what does your entire vulva look like you know and the fact that vagina is actually just one part of your vulva so i i discovered mirror work and i bought like a paddle salon type mirror and i would just sit it's it's a very awkward and uncomfortable thing and it's actually not very sexual at all to begin with um and i would just actually just look at my pussy just look at my body 
and touch it in a non-sexual way. And it brought up a lot of discomfort and a lot of shame would come up because you're looking at yourself in such a vulnerable way, you know, but it helped me to kind of, the more that I did that, and that that really is where I started before just kind of pleasuring myself and having an orgasm and, you know, bringing it into a partner. Before any of that stuff, it was getting a mirror and really seeing what my body looks like and then introducing sensuality into it. So by that, I mean, starting re- being really, really slow and gentle with um with myself as well um I wasn't rushing myself to get anything right I didn't expect that okay I'll do this for two weeks or two months and then all of a sudden I'm going to be you know um like a sexual goddess it was just about just being very slow with myself just touching myself really slowly just seeing how my body is actually changing how everything is swelling up that I still felt some discomfort as well because I I was only used to letting other people do that and I was only used to it happening when I was drunk. So just looking at my body was where I started. Mm, Yeah. And then um, I guess I don't really know a lot about Tantra, Tantra. uh, And so I'm, and yeah, it's something that I'm curious about and I know obviously there's plenty of resources out there, but can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So it's the idea of being intentional. So it's intentional pleasure. Um, I know a lot of people that have probably heard about um, tantric sex or tantra and actually even me before I started uh, really looking into it. You know, you hear about having sex for seven hours. People usually hear about Sting and Trudy and, you know, these retreats that they go on but that's not what it is. It's just about moving away from conventional sex, moving to sex that is not male focused, sex that isn't through the male gaze, which is what a lot of conventional mainstream sex actually is. It's, it doesn't really focus on a woman's pleasure. A woman's pleasure is kind of seen as secondary. And I really, when I look back on all the sex that I, um, that I had, before discovering this, I realized that a lot of it was very performative. I was simply just kind of replicating what I'd seen in porn, what I think I'm expected to perform like. And, you know, and a lot of it is very penetration focused as well and very ejaculation focused. So tantric sex is just moving away from all of that and just being very intentional about what's happening to your body um, and what you're doing to your body as well. So it, it, it really values slowness, um, just being really slow and gentle with yourself, not expecting anything to happen, um, not chasing orgasm, because a lot of a lot of people, a lot of us kind of just chase the peak orgasm, which is kind of when you probably you kind of shut your eyes and you tense up and you rub and you have an orgasm and it's about three seconds long. But tantric sex just kind of allows you to really just enjoy the process and just allow whatever's going to happen to happen. And I think it can be a great, great way to heal any kind of um, sexual trauma, to heal any, any, just any sexual wounds within you. And maybe this sounds like really woo woo and kind of like, ah, but it's, it's not. I'm honestly, it's, it's a great way to still to reconnect with your sexual energy in a way that isn't pushy and in a way that isn't uh, just focused on penetration. So I, I really do think it's a great, it's a great place to start for anyone that wants to just reconnect with their sexuality. 
Yeah. I mean, and I think like so much of what you're saying, it sounds simple and it makes so much sense. And yet I think it's like really quite challenging for a lot of people, especially women, this idea of like even asking these questions of like, what kind, what would sex look like for me if I was prioritizing my pleasure? What would Mm -hmm. sex look like if, you know, orgasm wasn't the goal? What would it look like if I wasn't, you know, like you said, like performing for, you know, in, in my case as well, like for a male partner and like these kinds of things, I realized I like literally had to learn how to have sex from scratch because my, my situation was very similar of it was super performative, you know, being aroused was something that was activated by a male partner, right? It wasn't something that I really took ownership of, you know, sex is something that was over when, you know, the male partner ejaculates, right? Like just these like ideas that were given, like you said, from porn, from, you know, movies from everywhere. And like, I'm still unlearning that, like, to be honest, like it's still stuff that like a lot of it is like so deep like in my brain, like in my psyche that like uh, things will pop up and I'm like, oh, right. Like, you know, it was, it was even, it was relatively recently that I like made the promise to myself, like I'm not going to fake orgasms and that I decided I'm no longer going to like get all my pubic hair waxed off. Like these little, and it's again, it's fine if anyone (laughs) wants to do whatever with their body. But for me, I was like, this is a violent thing that I hate and it's expensive and I'm only doing it because I think I have to. And yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Both of those things that you said um, are exactly the commitments that I also made for myself. Um, when I kind of started the my sexual journey, one of my biggest things was faking orgasms. I had only, I had never ever experienced a partner orgasm until March last year. So March 2018. It's when I first experienced my, um, had my first partner orgasm. But there are so many men out there that think they have given me the biggest, wildest orgasms because that became my default to just fake, you know. And I I also take into account that there are so many reasons and it's a very nuanced conversation as to why people fake orgasms. You know, it might be to get out of painful sex. Maybe they're having sex uh, through coercion or there are so so many reasons why people fake orgasms, but the majority when it comes to women who have sex with cis men is because we feel this need to perform, that our pleasure is secondary, that, you know, we have to help him reach orgasm. Um, and that we've, we've been made to believe that, you know, if we don't get aroused and have an orgasm within 10 minutes, then there's something wrong with us. Not knowing that our bodies, we we have some of the same stuff, but we're all built in very different ways. Your body really needs to awaken. Like a woman's arousal takes much longer, you know, and these are just things we don't know. And no one is to blame because we're not taught these things. And the the main teacher for a lot of people ends up being porn. And then what happens? You then take all of that into your into how you, you know, into how you have sex. So it becomes very performative. But for me, I made that commitment to not fake an orgasm, to, you know, in terms of being practical with that one, what does that look like for me? It looks like not uh, rushing straight into penetration and and being vocal about that if I feel like uh, my partner is being too quick, just saying no. I'm not I'm not ready yet and I know that not everyone can say that but it's about finding what way works for you without kind of just taking without 
thinking first and paying attention to whether your body's ready. And it's about me trying different things. So I focus also on oral pleasure because I know that gets me even more aroused. And I know just sensual touch works really well for me. Just and kissing gets me very, very aroused. So there are so many things that can happen when you shift the focus from penetration to what people call foreplay and what people kind of really disregard. And um, But for a woman, it's so important to really just pay attention to your body. And again, that can sound like something that's like, okay, what does that mean? But just knowing that you you can take all the time that you need, that you don't have to rush yourself to reach orgasm and then fake it on top because you, you probably won't reach it anyway. But yeah, that, that one is a very big one. How have you navigated dating after getting sober? It was, so I, so when my relationship ended, I didn't really date much. It wasn't an area of focus for me, but I think six months later, I ended up meeting someone. Um, So I'm not, I'm not really into apps or anything like that. I think I signed up, but it just felt, it just felt quite strange for me. So I didn't really connect to it. But I ended up meeting, I ended up meeting someone who we, we had, um, we had a good sexual experience, but I think I was still very much in that kind of performance, uh, performance phase. So that didn't really last because I knew I wanted to explore non-conventional sex. And then last year I ended up meeting a friend, a friend of mine who is also on a journey of exploring Tantra. And we made a decision to start just seeing what layers of pleasure are out there. So we have a sexual relationship where we just tell each other what we want to try and we explore it safely. But if it wasn't, if I wasn't with him, I can imagine that it would probably be a little bit difficult because it's not, because I've had friends that have gone sober and have started dating. And I think a lot of people in terms of romance are still very much weirded out by someone who doesn't drink because of the fact as well that a lot of people have their first um, sexual experience, alcohol is involved. So it can make it very, I can imagine that it can be a little bit awkward if you turn up on the date and the person isn't drinking and you are. I think there can be that element of kind of feeling judged, but I haven't, I haven't really experienced that yet. So, so it's something that I, I do wonder what it would be like if I wasn't with my current partner, mm-hmm. but yeah, I haven't um, really missed that one. Yeah. I mean, and I, I haven't experienced it either. And, and that was one of the reasons that I asked. Um, but I, yeah. so I'm curious for you, you know, in thinking about a romantic and sexual partnership and also just sidebar, mm. I'm really grateful that you mentioned being interested in maybe unconventional relationships or, you know, you have a partner that you're exploring this specific thing with because again, and there's mm. another episode in this season that's essentially all about unconventional relationships and this idea that, yeah, maybe. And I don't know the details of your relationship, but it sounds like there was a very conscious commitment to like building a sexual element and that maybe that doesn't look like what a traditional, you know, boyfriend relationship anyway. So just like having more freedom around that, I feel like is a great permission slip. Um, and then my, so my question is, you know, for you in thinking about either current or future romantic and sexual partnerships, how important is it to you that your partner is sober? 
Ooh, um, good question. I I would say, for example, my my current partner, he is not entirely sober. Um, no, he he's not sober. What do I mean entirely? <laughs> but he doesn't really drink much. When we're together, he doesn't really drink. And when he's in social situations, he'll kind of have like one beer. So I think for me, for anyone else that I end up being with, I think it's important for me that they are not a heavy drinker, that alcohol doesn't play a big role in their lives. And I think someone sober, that would be a plus, but I don't think it's necessarily a requirement. Um, but I think just someone who is mindful um, about drinking, yeah, it's important. Yeah, I'm thinking so. about that a lot personally. Um, my, yeah. my husband and I are in the process of getting unmarried right now, and he's also sober. And it has been like such a gift to have a partner, especially like a nesting partner that you, I live with, right? That it's it's not in the house. It's not even on the table. Like it's become yes. like I forget sometimes that I'm sober, right? Because like it's just not an issue. Yeah. And like I imagine I, I've had a couple of thoughts of like what it would be like, for example, this is a really specific thing, but what it would be like mm. to – kiss someone who has been drinking like the taste of it or being in that experience like I feel like that would be very jarring and I wouldn't like it oh wow yeah no you're you're absolutely right and I think it it ties into what you just said because this is my normal now and I'm not used to my current partner ever drinking and I've never kissed him and I've had to to kind of like okay you've had brandy you know so as soon as you said that, the thought of having to kiss someone that has been drinking, I think it would bother me because, yeah, I, I yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's, it's just it's, a tiny thing, but it's something that's on my mind of like all the little yeah. intricacies of making life changes, right? And navigating being in relationships of all different types because I have very few sober friends. I mean, none of my close, close friends mostly don't drink. And so I'm used to being around people who drink casually, right? Like not heavy drinkers. I'm not, or if they are, I'm not at those events, you know, and it really doesn't bother me. I'm fine with it. And there is a difference, you know, sort of when you get into more of like a romantic sexual realm. And yeah. so it's just been like top of mind for me. And again, there's no right answers, but it's always like an interesting yeah. thing to talk to other folks about. Definitely. Definitely. So I feel like we've we've covered a bunch of a bunch of different topics, lots of ground. I feel like I could talk to you for the rest of my life. But um, is before we start to wrap up, is there anything that hasn't come up yet in this conversation that you wanted to make sure that we talked about? No, I I think we have some good stuff. I think we have some good stuff, and I I really appreciate the fact that we've you know, covered some of the things that are maybe not spoken about so openly in recovery. And and for me, it's definitely sex and sensuality. I think there are a lot of people that um, are holding a lot of sexual shame and, you know, are very hard on themselves for the ways that they have behaved when they were drinking, you know, and I, I just want to, with the work that I do and the conversations that I make space for, I just want people to know that there is room to speak about raw sexuality to just speak about it all because it is a part of recovery recovery is really not a binary experience whether you call it recovery or sober living what whatever it is when you remove a vice so many things come to the surface and I think it's only right that you know sexuality and sex is also given the space um, for people to understand that it's it's normal to feel to feel like you're disconnected to your body. It's normal to 
to have that worry that you will never be able to have sex ever again you know um those feelings definitely definitely do come up so i i think it's always very important to to let people know that it does pass and for them to be able to hear other people's journeys and stories and how they navigated it so they know that they're not alone in the in the same way we let each other know we're not alone in other areas i think sex is um a very important part as well Yeah, I think so, too. So that makes me want to ask you one last question before we start to wrap up. Um, Tell me about the Cherry Revolution. Uh, Yes. So the Cherry Revolution is my sex positive company, which came from uh, my journey of sexual exploration. And the reason why it actually started was because of faking orgasms I would always um kind of have the conversations with my girlfriends about um what I had discovered through my tantra books and just through self-pleasure and we realized there were three of us we realized that we had been faking orgasms for nearly a decade um most of us started having sex when we were 14 as well and how we had kind of normalized it how scary it was to think that there were so many lunches all over the world or dinners taking place where women are laughing about the fact that they fake orgasms and that you know it's just a inevitable part of sex and on that very day I in in having that conversation I I said okay from today on death to faking it and then from that, the terror revolution was born. I started um, writing about sexuality, just being very raw and filtered and open and making room for women and femmes to talk about all the shit no one really talks about. And then it just grew and grew. And now it's become a community that is also in tangible spaces where we let each other know that it's okay to talk about pleasure, that pleasure is not a dirty word, that we don't have to look at the word pussy as an insult because there is nothing insulting about how you define your womanhood or femininity. Um, so yeah, it's it's something that I feel is much bigger than myself and it's something that I know is going to go global. It's very important to me that these conversations also reach Africa, where I'm from, um, <laughs> my name, but also where I'm from, um, because I, I just really want people to know that it's okay to talk about sex as a black woman who was raised in a Christian home. It's okay to talk about the things that happen to your body, regardless of your race, your culture, your traditions. It's okay to address your pleasure in a way that makes you feel all fluttery inside instead of feeling shame. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just a continuous mission to make pleasure a priority. I love that. I love that so much. The mantra death to faking it is so good. Your mission about making shameless pleasure a priority. Like I am in, I, I'm yeah. in for all of it. It's amazing. Um, so I think that's a, a good place to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these episodes are with a series of community questions. So the Patreon community, the folks who support and fund the show essentially pick, um, in this case, it's nine questions that all eight guests of this season are answering the same nine questions. If you're down to answer some random questions. Yes, absolutely. Let's have it. What's something that you've gotten better at over the past year? Over the past year, saying no. Mm, Yeah. Um, and (laughs) I, I, 
for me, that's one I hold really highly because I had a very big problem with um, putting myself first. And that would reflect in how I would kind of just say yes to everything. As we've spoken about sex, it was always a yes. I, I didn't feel like there was room to say no. Um, if my partner asked me, did you come? Yes. Um, if someone asked me to go somewhere and I know that I really don't want to go, I will say yes anyway. I just didn't, I just didn't give myself room to actually make a conscious choice about what it is that I want. So it's been very empowering to, to allow myself to say no and to understand that, you know, by saying no, I'm saying yes to myself. Mm. So say no, for sure. What's one thing that you have found challenging lately that's something that you've been struggling with? Mm, healing my emotional relationship with money. Um, I realized that I was holding on to a lot of beliefs um, about money. And as someone that wants to live a life of abundance, and I have many different ideas of what that looks like, but ultimately I realized that because of these beliefs, I was actually blocking the abundance from coming in. And one of those areas is money. So I've been really looking into what my relationship with money looks like, what my upbringing has looked like, how my parents were with money, um, my spending habits, why I find it so difficult to save money. And then when I do have it, I feel like I have to spend it, you know, this whole thing with uh, self-sabotage. But the most challenging has been healing my emotional relationship with money. Yeah, I'm going to stop myself from asking like all of that. I feel like this could be a whole other conversation, right? (laughs) So I'm just going to like take a deep breath and move on. Um, But actually, the next question is money related. What's one thing that you love to splurge on when you can? Splurge. A massage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like any kind of like, this is going to sound whatever, but like paying people to do stuff to my body is like my favorite yeah. way to spend money. <laughs> yes, I love that. I love that. It's so important. It's so important. I always, I, I did used to think um, massages were a luxury, but um, I'm really starting to look at, at them as a really important part of self-care and to really just allow parts of my body to move in a way that I don't. I don't really allow them to any other time. So massage for sure. Yes. The last thing that I'll say about that, a mindset shift for me with um, massage too, sort of in line with what we've been talking about, about like sensuality, sexuality is trying to incorporate more non-sexual touch into my life. Um, has been really helpful to not just see like touch is always sexual and it always looks this way. And for whatever reason, massage helps me with that. Yes, yes, yes. I love that. I love that. So tell me about a time when you failed at something. It could be something big or small, but just what's something that you failed at? Uh, Not snoozing my alarm clock. No, I failed. Yeah, I failed at not snoozing my alarm clock. It's it's been a big thing that I've been trying to combat um, to just make sure that when my alarm rings, I get up then and there without snoozing. So I failed at that many times before it finally stuck. Now it's stuck a little bit. When you feel stuck, what's one thing that helps you to keep moving forward? Mm, Good question. When I feel stuck, what's one thing that helps me move forward? Journaling. 
really seeing my thoughts on paper helps me, helps me to kind of really break everything down and to find the answer of what I need to do. And again, that might sound like really, <laughs> what does that even mean? But as someone that has always um, used writing as a, as a way to express myself and to really just see what my thoughts look like, I find that journaling really, really helps me. Yeah, I can relate to that so much. What's one thing that feels really important to you right now? Maybe it's a goal or intention you've set or just something that you're intentionally spending your time and energy on? Using my voice, even when it feels uncomfortable, um, I think I'm in a very privileged uh, place to be able to speak in the way that I do, to be able to get messages across, to be able to open up dialogues. And for as long as I fucking can, I will continue to use my voice, even when it feels uncomfortable. Yeah, I love that. The next question is about books. Um, yeah. two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Yes. So the first one that I will mention and anyone that is, um, on my page will know that I've been pushing this book for the past two years, but it's the one that, um, kind of ignited everything for me in terms of sexuality. And it's called women's anatomy of arousal. And it's written by Sherry Winston. This book is absolutely incredible. I feel like it's, it's a Bible almost. It's so powerful and it teaches you everything about your genitalia, um, pleasure about tantra the history of tantra and just very very practical steps and the book is actually filled with practical activities so I kind of use it as a so I I almost have lessons with myself where I have the book and then I have my mirror and then I kind of go into class but it's a very very good book um yeah, I think that's the only one that I'll recommend. Yeah, it's very I, I'm going to go from this conversation to buy that book. So you've you've just convinced me. <laughs> Don't worry, <laughs> that's happening. <laughs> um, the The last question: If you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take. Oh, that's a that's a very good one. Um, I would maybe give. Um, anyone who's listening a journal prompt so the question for that which you can then expand um, as much or as little as you want to in your journal is what would life look like if I allowed myself to get uncomfortable so what would life look like if I allowed myself to get uncomfortable so you can interpret that as in any way that you want to but um that's a question that I ask myself quite regularly, and I find that it brings up um, a lot of insightful stuff. So what would life look like if I allowed myself to get uncomfortable? Mm, that's such a good one. Um, what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yes, I do. So my the platform that has my entire heart is Instagram and you can find me at Africa Brook, which is my personal page where I talk about holistic self-development and sober living and just my life experiences. And I kind of create the space for us to have a conversation. And I have my sexual exploration page, which is at cherry revolution and over there it's kind of the same sort of style but we dive deeper into sex um it's very unfiltered it's very raw um 
And yeah, it's a it's a very, very, very good place to be, especially if you just want to know where to start. Um, I've written so, so many things that you can just kind of go back on and just see if anything helps. And with a lot of what I write on there, you can also get some practical tools to work with. But um, you can find me on either one of those. And if you have any questions, you're more than welcome to pop me a message. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Africa, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so, so much for having me. I've loved this conversation. I really have. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Mary. Hi, Mary. Hi. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. I'm ready. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Ooh, I've been totally obsessed with different herbs and tinctures to uh, manage mental health, like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorders. Um, I've been taking a lot of trainings on it, and I'm just totally devouring everything I can get on it. I have a million follow-up questions. First of all, mental health is the field that you work in, right? Yeah. Yep. I um, am starting my own practice um, and currently managing at a community mental health center in New Hampshire. I have many herbal tincture related questions, but anything in particular that you really like or that has been working well? Um, I've been like dabbling in some ashwagandha um, to help with some anxiety. And also there's, you can actually get like a chewable form of GABA um, that helps people sleep. So like I get insomnia when I have my period and that has just completely taken that away and I've been able to sleep. That's so interesting. Yeah. As you, as selfishly as you dig into this, I'm like going to want to ask you more questions. That's so interesting. Um, what's one thing that you have been awesome at lately? Go ahead and brag a little bit. Ooh, fun question. I have been really good about setting realistic goals for myself. Um, so much so, uh, that like, I've been doing a winter warrior challenge and normally I would be like, I'm going to run five miles a day. And I was like, no, I'm going to walk one mile a day. And that's what I've been doing. And it's been so nice. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. There's something to be said for committing to things and doing the things right that like are moving you in the direction that you want to go or what, like anything along that, um, like topic, but not overreaching. Yeah. Yeah. And like truly letting it be okay that this is where I'm at and, and just like not having to go further, which has been really fun. What's your go-to song when you need a mood boost? Whoa. Um, I have songs for different moods. So (laughs) no joke. There's a song from the movie gem and the holograms, um, that, when I'm feeling like I need to like rally to go do a hard thing again that maybe I've already done. I listen to that. Um, and then basically anything by Brandy Carlisle or, um, 
uh, Carol King, I will listen to when I just mm-hmm. need to like power back on. <laughs> I love that. Um, what's <laughs> one goal that you're working toward right now? I would have to say my business and like getting it up and running so that I can eventually transfer out of my agency. Do you have a, like a timeline that you're hoping for with that? I do. Um, I would like it to be in the springtime. Um, and definitely no later than the summertime, but you know, things come up. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. What's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? Yeah. Uh, most things. Um, I, I, I knew you were going to ask this and I was like, Oh, I should like be prepared. I think my like comfortable answer is money. Um, but my uncomfortable answer is like, and ironically, I read your email today, the whole concept of people who are seen as being strong and like when they're like talking about their own mental health, right? So for me, it comes up as being a therapist. It's almost uncomfortable to talk about my own mental health because I feel like for my clients, I need to be strong and, but I also am human and I have emotions and um, just the ability to talk about like not always being okay. Uh, even when I'm in a role where I'm supposed to be right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and being able to like hold space both for ourselves and for each other, like for multiple things to be true, right. That you can be there for your clients and also be having a hard time. And like things look different at different points in the day or the week or the season or your life or yeah, just like, I'm really trying to move away from this like sort of binary, like you're either fine or not fine. You know, I think that it's like very infrequently. Is that the case? Right. And, um, just the idea even of like one day, maybe you are totally fine. Right. And like, but the next it's just a harder day and you're not as fine. Yeah. Yeah. And that it can be like a cyclical thing or a changeable thing. Yeah. 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 Cause I think we as like a society have a hard time with that. Like, Oh, you're not over that yet. No, (laughs) no, it's still here. Yeah. It's with me. No, that's, that's Mm -hmm. really well said. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests each season, for which I'm super grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. The first, why you decided to support the show and then what you love most about being in our community. Yeah, um, I decided because I really also believe that where you spend your money is actually the most effective way to like be heard. And, um, for a long time, I've, I don't know how long I've been following along in your adventures, but it's been a while. And for a long time, I actually like wasn't financially able to. And then when I was, it was like really cool to be able to be like, I can finally do this. Um, so that's why I did it. And I probably don't participate in the community enough. It's something that I would like to do more. Um, I completely just love your Friday emails. Those are like, I look forward to that. And um, I wish that like you could even more worldly give that out. Cause I think it really helps me sometimes. Like there's always something in the emails where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad somebody else in the world like is feeling <laughs> that too. <laughs> right? Like. Um, and I'm sure it's something different for everybody, but I, 
it's just genuine. So those are my favorite. Thanks. Yeah, it's always really nice to have a reminder from folks who read the emails or even, you know, who listen to the show too, to be like, yep, I resonate with this. It's just like, it sounds silly, but it is just so comforting over and over again to be reminded that you're not alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share where you live and maybe like a social media link if people want to say hi? Sure. I live um, in the seacoast of New Hampshire, um, which is probably one of the country's best kept secrets. So come see us. And uh, my Instagram is probably the best way. Um, and that's at mary.mar.tina. Um, and then hopefully by the time this goes out to the world, my website will be up and running. And that's uh, marymartina.com. That's so exciting. Yeah. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.